I'm Claire Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And And this this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we, Claire and Ashley, are two best friends who talk about memoirs. But let me ask you something. The tone. How would you describe the tone? The tone? I'd say the tone is... Saucy? (laughs) Yeah, totally. If you were to say that this podcast was a flavor, what flavor would it be? Let's take us to Flavortown. I would say the flavor is like a hot honey sauce because we're spicy, but we're tasty. You don't Mm -hmm. like need to guzzle water. We're we're not trying to cause pain. Okay. We're not trying to hurt you. We're trying to add a little bit of flair. But we're also not saccharine sweet, baby. We're not just going to melt on your tongue. There's a kick. So if you're not looking for any kicks, go to another boxing class, baby. Hands only. (laughs) If you're a rockette like us. We're dancing, baby. (laughs) Get on in. Ashley, can we get into my week first? Just because you have something to say about my week, but you wouldn't tell me until we were on the mic. And I like am desperate to hear what you have to say. Okay, Claire, let me ask you this week if you were to write about it in a memoir what would you call it that's brisk baby (laughs) like the tea Uh uh-huh but also like a pool okay like you jumped into a pool of tea and you went whoo brisk baby (laughs) because if you guys listened to last week I was talking about how I'm trying to get more into the pond of networking Uh and I jumped in two feet last week baby and let me tell you something it was all of my fears it was exactly as I thought people were nasty to me they were little buttheads. It was deeply unenjoyable, but I did get out there. I put in an honest hour, like three or four nights in a row. I got booked on a show. I feel like I did in passing see good people. So even though I hated the experience overall, I do understand that you just got to grit your teeth and smile. Yeah. So Wednesday night, Claire went to a party that I was initially planning to attend and the location moved a couple times. And I will say I knew that the party wasn't going to be fun or worth it. How did, why didn't you tell me? Because I wanted you to go out. I would have gone to the party you went to, Star Bar. I didn't go to that party either. Okay. I went to no party. I really wanted you to be going out and bopping around. The party was so bad that it was like a birthday party for this guy who didn't even show up. I know. But I will say I genuinely didn't think you would go because you had already gone home at that point. And I didn't know that you would go back out because I've never known you to do the thing. It was raining. It was pouring down rain and it was hot. It was somehow both like the hottest day of the year and the wettest day of the year. And it wasn't sexy, even though those words tend to be sexy. (laughs) Yeah. I do feel like when people say that something is hot and wet, they mean it in a slutty way. And somehow I went to one of the most drying events. (laughs) said I had two people be like rude to my face and I was like I fucking hate these people but and then I was so proud of you for actually leaving your house that I almost went to the party but then I just didn't no it's good that I went on my own it really is one of those things where it's like if that's the worst that can happen then I've lived it baby I did my best socializing I had to talk for 20 minutes with a man who the first time he met me we've met maybe four times the first time he met me looked at me and said I can tell that you are pure evil and I was like I don't think that that's true I actually will say I think that the person that you're talking about is a genuinely evil person. Maybe stop looking into my mirror of an eyeball. And I'm not even saying that because he said that to you. I'm saying that because I've met him enough times to be like, I think that there is something so dark and unhinged about you and I fear it. He was there and he was talking about how he's going to Italy in September. Uh And I don't know if you guys know this, but my boyfriend got me a trip to Italy for Valentine's Day 2020. (laughs) And obviously it did not pan out. And then it was rescheduled for this September. And now we've also had to cancel in September because... Because there's this rule for the U.S. right now, if you're not a U.S. citizen, like if I go to Italy, I'll have to quarantine for 14 days in Canada and then come back in and I just can't take three weeks off work. So we can't go. So this guy is saying he's going to Italy and all of a sudden I go, wait, but you're Canadian. I'm like, how are you going to be able to come back? And he's like, oh, you can just come back. 
And I was like, are you sure? Because like my boyfriend's pretty sure that you can't. And he was like, no, 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 no. I just asked someone. It's fine. And I was like texting Mac. And he was like, well, it's because of this. And then the guy would be like, oh, that doesn't apply. And we kept going back and forth. And then he like came at me. He's like, stop screaming at me. Why are you yelling at me? And I was definitely talking loudly because it was like a party. So the music was really loud, but I wasn't screaming at him. I was just being heard because this was an incredibly relevant conversation to both of us. Like either I'm right and he's going to get deported or he's right and I can go to Italy. So either way, this is going to majorly change somebody's September. (laughs) So I felt like it was a valid conversation to have. And then he just kept fighting back. And finally I gave up and he's like, your boyfriend's a moron. He doesn't know who he's talking about. Blah, blah, blah. And I looked and I saw exactly the fact that we were right. It was right there on the website. And I was just like, I'm not even going to fucking tell him. Let him get deported. Then we don't have to deal with him anymore. I don't want him to be around anymore. And then the other guy that was sitting next to us was like, I'm sick of hearing about your boyfriend. Do I talk about Mac a lot in public? (laughs) Barely ever. And I wish he would more because he is not a dark energy. (laughs) So removed from him in my comedy life. And so for this guy to say that to me, by the way, before this conversation, I had sat in silence for 30 minutes listening to these men freestyle rap. Ew. And then I brought up one deeply relevant conversation that didn't even involve this guy. And he goes, I'm sick of hearing about your boyfriend. And I was like, I hate everybody in this fucking room. And I cannot wait for all of you <laughs> to get deported. Even the one that's from here. I'll figure it out. I'm going to send him to another country and then get him deported back to the U.S. I don't care where he's getting deported from, but I want everyone's dreams shattered. I want everyone separated from their family. I want everyone with a permanent record. Anyway, I'm still happy I went. I still think built a little resilience in me. But fuck those people absolutely fuck those people and i'm happy you went i'm happy you're going out more i don't think you have a good vibrator for comedy parties and stuff i don't but you need to learn it because i can't tell it to you why it just doesn't work that way that's the radar that you need to develop is like where's the place where you're comfortable and good because that place does exist somewhere yeah and it's my apartment (laughs) no there's somewhere else so yeah that was my week it was brisk baby but i'm dry and i'm back ashley yes what would the chapter of your memoir this week be called It would be called First Move Bitch because I have turned over a fresh new leaf where I've been making the first move. And you guys don't know this about me, but I have been in my life so deeply cowardly about first moves. We're talking about dating again, obviously. So I told you guys a while ago that I've been wishy-washy on the dating apps. I've been trying not to go on them. I have been known to on Bumble first move someone by saying, if you had to start the conversation, what would you say? Ashley, you're like a funny, interesting person. Why are you? Because I don't text good. And that's what I've learned is I don't text good if we've never met. Okay. Going into this summer, I was like, I'm going to be talking to dudes at bars. I'm going to get flirty in real life. It's going to be great. And then I just didn't do anything. And then I got a voice note from my pal Neve. And she was like, so have you had that summer? Have you been winking at fellas from across the bar? And I was like, no, I haven't been. I was like, this is the weekend that I do it. So I went out and I, I wasn't like aggressive. I wasn't crazy. But when I picked up a vibe, I leaned into it and opened a door. Now I've got a couple fellas that I'm texting, all of which I've met in real life, all cool people. And I'm really excited about it. And tell them how many this weekend, how many text convos really got initiated? Three, three potential situations for who the hell knows what. But it's like, I do feel like obviously there's chances to get shut down and obviously shit could get not ideal. But I have been sitting here being like, how come the kinds of guys that I like don't like me back? And that's not true. They do like me back. I just you are unreadable. I'm unreadable and I need to make myself readable. And if that means starting the conversation or elevating things myself to just see where the energy flows, then that's what I got to do. And things are fun right you now. know what I think the problem is because you are so social that if a guy like meets you at a bar and you guys have a really fun convo and then he watched you for the rest of the night he'd be like oh she's having a fun convo with everybody yes there was one guy where we were just having a really 
fun conversation. And then I, I had to leave cause I was meeting up with someone else. And, <gasps> and I was like, well, if you want to take my number and text me next weekend or something and we've been texting. And so I don't know, it's just like not that hard to pick up a vibe and run with it because I don't think he would have asked for my number. I think it would have just been a fun conversation in a bar, but I think he was really happy that I said, take my number. And that's all you have to do. Obviously things aren't going to go great every time. I feel like things are pretty bright right now. And you know what they say about bright times is the sun will set again. So if anyone (laughs) wants to... If anyone wants to start putting money down on when I get my feelings hurt and clam up again, let me know. (laughs) I think it's time to say thank you to our long overdue British listeners. Oh, my God. So I am about to read the five star reviews that we got from a UK screenshot. Shout out to Claire. Thank you for sending these to us. Not me. A different Claire. If I miss you, I'm so sorry. Sky Caroline is a bitch. You're not a bitch to us. Ellie Clancy. You're so much better at this because I have a funny story about Clancy. My best friend growing up was named Casey and my grandma would always call her Clancy. <laughs> that was funny. Hushwash Vash. Thank you. Joykin one. You bring joy to us. Happy Clementine. I love a Clementine. And I'm so happy you're happy. Jjajm10. You're a 10 to me. Monica Nenk22. This week's chapter is all you. Kat Mustev. A must-have. <laughs> Katie Ferg. Did you have one or no? No, I'm looking to you. Fergalicious. Oh, good idea. Thank you so much to our British listeners. We love you guys. Claire. Ashy. Should we get into this week's book? I think we should. I'm so excited. It was so much better than I could have hoped. Fresh squeezed orange juice in the morning. This week, we read Jody Sweeten's Unsweetened. And you may be saying, who? And to that I say, how rude. She played Stephanie Tanner on the worldwide sensation of a TV show, Full House, Nick at Night, Nick in the Morning, (laughs) Nick in the Summertime. And mostly this is a story about how she got addicted to meth. Claire, what did you know about Jodie Sweetin before you opened this book? Would you believe absolutely nothing? Okay. I loved Full House. I grew up on it. I can recall almost every episode. I do think you'd be hard pressed to find a member of our generation who hasn't seen every episode of Full House. But I will say, I think I could have come up with her name before reading this book. I would have been like, I don't even know why I know that. I fully had no idea what she was up to. I had heard that she got addicted to meth and hosted a stripper game show. And that's all I knew about. I was like, oh, yeah, that girl from Full House who like kind of went off the rails. Interesting. I don't know why I missed out completely on her pop culture resurgence because it does seem like she was tabloid fodder for a bit. I don't think she was that hard of tabloid fodder. I still think she was like a tabloid next door neighbor. I don't think she was ever headline news. Should we get into this saga? So, Jodie Sweeten was born on January 19th, 1982. From the time she was three years old, was a little performer. She talks about getting out on the stage and stealing the dance recital. All the other kids were kind of nervous being on stage for the first time. I guess she lapped it up. She was born in the L.A. area, not L.A. proper, but I guess her parents pretty quickly were like, I guess we'll take her on auditions. Yeah, she says that she pushed to be on auditions. And so her parents took them and she makes a big deal of being like, my mom was never a stage mom. She never pushed me. I was the one who wanted it. And she went along with it. And we've famously discussed how hard can a kid not be 
pushed if they're a child star. I think we talked about this a lot with Britney Spears when we talked about Jamie Lynn's memoir. A lot of kids want to be a dancer or an actress or a performer when they grow up. And some parents say, of course, of course, we'll involve you in community theater. And some parents say, "Okay, let's get you an agent. I do want to give the benefit of the doubt that in the 80s in L.A., it was probably very normalized. And I feel like the stereotype of the fucked up child star maybe wasn't as publicized as it is now but I'm sure it still was based on what we read from this book I don't want to like condemn the mom but I do think to say this whole concept of a mom who didn't push it was all the kids idea three-year-olds have a lot of ideas it is not hard for an adult to say actually it's not smart to make you a business person right now but she is allowed to go on auditions and she's good at it she goes Hollywood it turned out loved me I'd audition for one commercial and land a totally different bigger commercial or I'd go on set for a commercial and wind up taking another kid's job because they had done so well. So she starts getting commercials and she's getting like bit little roles on sitcoms. And then when they decide to create Full House, she was actually the first person they cast. They built Stephanie Tanner around her. So she had done a bit role on a show that the producers of Full House were also producing and they saw her on that show and they were like, we're working on this other family show and she needs to be a big part of it. So by the time she's five years old, Full House starts. So this is really the beginning of her conscious memories, I'd say. Like the beginning of who you are. And she's the middle child in that show. And when the show started, the critics hated it. But by season two... It was like a rating success. Season three, it was one of the top 10 shows in America. And that was a time when when something was popular, every single person in America was watching it or knew someone who watched it. There was not this weird fracturing of pop culture. It wasn't like back in the day when there were three channels. But when something was top 10, it was enormous. She's pretty young, so she doesn't have like a ton of out of the ordinary vivid memories, but she has two strong things, which is one, they were a family and they did all love each other. Something that is mind blowing to me is that the narrative around a lot of these shows that everybody's a family and we all get along. I mean, lest we forget the hate I got for claiming that Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick weren't best friends on their movie that they shot together. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I think that's something people love to push that they're like, everybody was so close. These people really were close. They were like a little family and the show was on for eight seasons. And because they all ranged in ages, I do think that they were able to fill very specific familial roles. And also, again, it was on for eight seasons. So the kids literally grew up together. Jodie Sweetin went from five to 13 on this show. The Olsen twins went from infancy to like conscious children on this show. And they talk about how Bob Saget was kind of a father figure, which was interesting to me. I think he had to publicly rail against the Tanny Tanner image just mm-hmm. to get his comedy swinging again at the time he was married with three kids so he was very quick to fill that father role he knew how you would want to treat your daughters she says Lori Lachlan was very motherly to all of them she paid for them all to go to college (laughs) because they were all such different ages and because she was probably too young to understand competition at least from her perspective she was able to be like we all got along I don't think it's like a 90210 reboot where it's like who's the sexiest girl this week who's getting the hit lines yeah I don't think it's healthy to grow up on set obviously but I do think that Full House sounds like the healthiest it could possibly be she says for a while she and Candace didn't get along at all yeah big middle sister vibe Yeah, and I do think that that makes sense. When you're a girl coming into your teen years, you don't want to hang out with the little kid. And that is true for sisters as well. So I think that they had this bizarre but very familial dynamic. So the negative thing, though, of course, even though it does sound like it was the healthiest set possible, it was still first and foremost a set with a multi-million dollar business being run on a tight little schedule. And she talks about how when you are a small adult, when you are a child who 
an entire million dollar operation relies on you can't act like a child she's like i would throw these temper tantrums and it was really unacceptable and she's like most six-year-olds can have a bad day when 200 crew are waiting on you you cannot have a bad day and she says if i had a cold the producers called the set doctor who gave me medicine and i got to work one time i had the flu and they were forced to stop production of the show for a week and they just kept calling her mom and saying can she come back yet can you imagine being seven years old throwing up sick as a dog and they're just like okay but but you're letting everyone down. That is a tough thing to put on a child. That is a lot of pressure, no yeah. matter how nice Uncle Jesse is. Totally. I know. I completely agree. I think that that sounds like a fucking nightmare. And because her mother was her manager, she said her mom always had to be the middle person who was on the one hand her manager, but on the other hand, her mom and come in and with kindness be like, I understand, sweetie, it's very hard, but you do have a job to do. But she also says her parents always said she could quit, but she was very conscious of the fact that they would never be able to replace her character. So I question this. I also question this. So she says by the third season, even though it was so much pressure, because that's really when the show hit its stride. I knew, though, that whenever they try to replace characters in other shows, it never worked as well. So I just couldn't do that. And I was like, is that a thought an eight-year-old has about the continuity of sitcoms? She's like, it just never even occurred to me to quit. And I'm like, okay, then they definitely weren't telling you that you actually could quit. Or they were like, you can quit. But then somebody was on the other end saying, but... Yeah, you can quit, but it'll ruin the show. But don't worry, you can quit if you want. But it'll ruin the show. <laughs> the other problem is this begins her sort of identity crisis and her lifelong trauma of feeling alone. First of all, I want to say, no matter what the age, we hear this a lot from actors and actresses who play a character for an extended amount of time, that it does sort of create this blurry line between who you are and who the character is, especially when you're growing up in a role. And it was a role that was vaguely written around her. So the line between who Stephanie Tanner is and who Jodie Sweetin is, is extremely blurry. And she had a really hard time with that. And then the second thing is this is a set where she's growing up in this really unique situation. No one else on set is her age. She's still going to school half days. Mm -hmm. But she talks so much about how they all seem to have this bond. She's like, was that bond happening in the afternoons after I had to leave and go to work? When were people like making these inside jokes? She was just living a completely different life than everyone she knew. She felt very alienated and left out. I mean, it makes sense. You're on a set. You're the only kid your age. You have no one to truly play with. She talks a lot about getting bullied at school. Not only was she lonely because she was living a different life than all of her classmates, but she also was the star of a show that was directed to her age group. So that's a really weird and difficult place to be because her friends are watching her on TV. That's weird. She also talks about becoming the middle child character and talking about having her awkward years on TV. And I don't think anybody would necessarily agree with this. This feels like one of those things where you look at a photo of yourself and you hate it and nobody else really knows why it looks bad but you. But she talks about how DJ got to become like the beautiful older sister. Michelle was during primetime cuteness. She was out by the time she was eight. And then she was on there during 11, 12, when she really did have braces, when her face really was coming together. And she kind of blames her lack of success on that. She's like, I came to during the worst period of my life looks wise. She really does blame her kind of inability to transition out of this show on the fact that she wasn't cute on the show. She talks about the Olsons at this point when she would have summers off. She was still always sad because she couldn't go to summer camp with everybody else. They were still filming the summers. But she says during the breaks from the show, the Olsen twins would go and do multiple movies in that break. Hearing about Jodie Sweetin's life and how how much work it really is for a six or seven year old. The idea that the Olsen twins were doing like two or three times that work. They weren't even getting the summers off. It really made me feel for them about how brutal their childhood must have been. Just the fact that they truly were child laborers and there was never a moment of rest. That they yeah. were getting the same PTO as like an adult American. They're getting like a week at Christmas and a week in August. And that was it. If that. We don't even have proof of that. And they were six. I mean, they never got time to have fun. Think about how many movies they were in that were 
straight to DVD Mary Kate and Ashley movies by the time New York Minute came out when they were like 19. Like 36 or something. It's insane. It was like dozens of movies and I can recite every single one for you starting from the top. Let's go. <laughs> so she starts feeling lonely. Like she doesn't fit in. She's still going to school. She's the only one on set who's still trying to go to school at least. She also becomes hugely famous and I think this contributed mm-hmm. to her loneliness a lot further because as the show got more successful she had a ton of appearances that she had to go to and so she was signing autographs for people her age who were mad at her if she couldn't get to the whole crowd which she never could because so many people showed up she talks about how she hadn't yet learned that she deserved boundaries one time at a baseball field she was told to sit in the stands we're trying to get this scene staged and ready to go do not talk to anyone do not sign any autographs and a woman came up to her and was like will you sign this for me And she was like, I'm not supposed to right now. And the woman flipped the fuck out and called her like an ungrateful bitch. Can you imagine being a grown woman asking a child for an autograph and then screaming at them? She had to get security because people were threatening to kidnap and murder her. But in the meantime, she's still going to school and she's still trying to have this normal life. She does a good job, I think, being like everyone at school gets bullied. Everybody has a bad time in middle school. But when I was there, I was so sure it was only me because I felt like I had such a different experience than everybody. And she was not necessarily handling it well. She tells a story about how one day she was getting teased and she goes, everyone kept laughing. I couldn't take it. I stood up, turned around, picked up my blue plastic chair and chucked it across the table at her. She then doesn't ever even get in trouble. She clearly is having outbursts that are not necessarily normal, that are responses to not being in a good place emotionally for a child. But nobody ever stops her. I can't imagine the amount of anxiety that going to a mall and having to get escorted out by police because 6,000 people showed up when you're eight years old would give you. Yeah. And also the idea that there are never any consequences for you, which is a theme that comes up later during her addiction, that it doesn't ever seem like she's ever hit a rock bottom. So season eight comes around and I guess there's sprinklings that they might get canceled. And so she says with very little fanfare or warning with two weeks notice, they get canceled. Yeah. She skipped kindergarten, but she's 13 years old and she goes to start high school. She's just a full-time student now. She just is a kid. So she's going to this performing arts magnet school, like a specialty program within a school. And she's there. She's 13 years old. She's starting high school. She's feeling very alienated and she's doing this arts program to continue her acting career. But she's still skipping most afternoons to go on auditions and she feels so torn. She is getting rejected for the first time in her life. She has like Stephanie Tanner syndrome where everyone's like, we can't think of you as anything but her. She starts getting a little bit frustrated and on top of that she's tired of feeling like an outsider in her high school so she wants to skip auditions and stay with her friends and try and figure out a way to fit in and I think her mom is pretty insightful about this where she realizes she can't whine about auditions to her acting school friends because they would all die for auditions they are not kids who got put in front of an agent at three years old and so they all want an agent they all want to be actors someday I honestly do wonder how many of them became actors to go to a performing arts high school in the LA area someone from that class must have done okay she's going to school she's trying to be normal she is going to school with a bunch of people who grew up watching her on television also so her first boy moment in high school there's like this welcome dance and the hottest boy walks up to her and like by the end of the dance they're making out and then she finds out that he has a girlfriend and his friends had just been like I dare you to make out the girl from full house that is a hard moment to be a dare sucks (laughs) But I do feel like she did slip in pretty quickly. It wasn't Mean Girls where she's eating lunch in the bathroom. And if it was, it was for the first week and a half because pretty quickly she's dating a junior boy who's very well liked. And this is one of her funnier lines. I have to say she has a couple of lines that actually caught me off guard and made me laugh out loud. She goes, Ryan was one of the more popular kids in my link to an elevated high school status. Everyone at school liked him, even though he was known as the class clown and wasn't exactly on the honor roll. He's probably a senator now or something. The very end of her freshman year. So she's got a boyfriend and she is going to Candace Cameron... Now Candace Cameron Bure's wedding. Burr. Burr. 
Bjor. Burr. So she goes to Candace Cameron's wedding. The Full House family stayed very close, honestly. It seems like for years. So she's at the wedding. She's at the end of her freshman year. The waiter comes around just giving everyone wine because it's a wedding. That's just kind of how it works. She downs a glass of wine. I feel like when you hand a kid her age wine, you kind of expect them to like take a sip and be like, bleh. Yeah. But not her. She goes, this glass of wine was my first real drink. I downed the whole glass. I felt a rush of energy course through my body. I instantly felt like a new person. That first drink gave me the self-confidence I had been searching for all this time. That first drink, that was it. That was the key to everything I was missing in life. She then goes on to have like six glasses of wine, get black out and throw up everywhere. Yeah. And her family was embarrassed and her date was mortified and it just like was a thing. But it doesn't seem like there were any true consequences other than people being like, what the fuck? <laughs> I do feel like there's like a sense like, oh, who gave the teenager wine? But she does say a big chunk of what I felt I was missing in me had been filled that day by drinking. And she felt she had no confidence and she didn't know who to be at high school because she wasn't Stephanie Tanner, but she thought everyone wanted her to be. So she starts drinking. She starts drinking and it's not that crazy. I mean, for a high schooler to be pursuing alcohol, she knew a lot of people who were also doing that, but no one was doing it at the level that she was. I feel like a lot of people were looking for like a couple wine spritzers to get a tiny bit buzzed in their parents' basement. And she was like, let's black out. She says, how could I have had friends without looking like I was trying too hard? How could I keep to myself without people thinking I was a snob? I looked around and thought my classmates had it together, that they had something I didn't. I wanted to figure out how to be more like them. The answer, alcohol and drugs. Every night, she's like going out to get fucked up. She goes, from even the beginning, one drink wasn't enough. Others were happy being buzzed. I needed to be completely smashed and obliterated. And she does get in some trouble with her parents. I feel like her parents weren't completely oblivious, but they definitely weren't like grounding her. They tried to say that she couldn't go to grad night at the end of her high school year, but then she was just like, please, can I? And they were like, okay, but be good. And she went, she walked in and did ecstasy immediately. (laughs) By my senior year, I was pretty out of control, but I felt like I had friends. Drinking made me fun and fun equaled friendship. Then she gets into college. She goes to Chapman, which is right nearby. And her parents want her to live at home. And I think it's because they knew a lot more than she was letting on about how things were getting so out of control. I feel like she's like, I put on a good front. And it's like, I don't think you did put on that good of a front, but I don't think anyone knew how badly you needed them to step in. Or how to step in. You've said this about people. When people are drinking heavily, when they're like, 18 19 years old you're like oh this is a phase it's hard to tell who's an alcoholic and who's not a big constant in this book is that nobody had any idea what was ever going on with her and i find that so hard to believe and this is one of the things where she was going to go to school an hour away and the same parents who allowed her to work a full-time multi-million dollar job when she was five now said that she wasn't allowed to live in a dorm on campus like i just don't understand yeah they wanted her to commute to school and she insisted on living in the dorms and that's where she got acquainted with drugs. They knew. They knew that that was going to happen. But the summer going into school, she meets a man named Sean Holguin. He was a handsome 22-year-old security guard at an arena. Candace Cameron. Married Mark Bure, who was a hockey player, and she like brought Jody to a hockey game with her. She made eyes at a security guard. He eyed back. He claims he had no idea what Full House was. Do we believe him? No. Yeah. I believe that he didn't go out with her because she was the girl from Full House. Like, she wasn't a dare to him. He was like, that girl's hot. Oh, I think I recognize her from TV. She does have tiggle bitties. Yeah. He said, look at those boobs. And then he saw her face next. And he said, I recognize that face from TV. But more importantly, what grew post TV? (laughs) So she goes to school. She gets into coke right quick. She starts spiraling out of control. She's still dating Sean. 
not well. He basically will just put up with whatever she puts him through. He's there when she wants him. And when she doesn't want him, she just won't return his calls. I would say you could define their relationship as um, he is a doormat and she's wiping her shoes off before she goes in the house. Like covered in shit. (laughs) (laughs) A story they tell is that he didn't like her friends. He didn't like going out, but he wanted to see her. So one night they were all supposed to go out to a club together. He was wearing a t-shirt so he couldn't get in. She'd already done tons of coke. So she's like, well, I'm still partying. She's on coke and ecstasy. So she's just like peace and leaves him at the front of the club. Little does she know she has the car keys in her purse. She's partying for hours. She doesn't hear her phone. He just has to wait at the car. When she comes out, she's like, what are you still doing here? And he goes, you have my keys. So she's like, oh, sorry. So they drive back to the dorm. And then she goes, I'm still going to keep partying. And he's like, I don't want to. She goes, okay, I'm just going down the hall for like one minute. She runs to her friend's room, starts just doing lines of cocaine. He comes in, starts banging on the door and she grabs the coke and hides in a closet so she can finish all the cocaine. And she's like, don't let him in. I just want to finish this real quick. She's like, we did get into a big fight that night. But the next day I cried and apologized and we moved on. So she's partying like a mad person. She clearly has a problem. I would say from the first drink, it was clear that she had a problem, especially in hindsight, looking back on how she felt about it but at this point she is partying nonstop. she finishes her first year of college with a 0.9 gpa and then i think after that she realizes things had gotten out of control so her and sean decide that they are going to like get her help they go to a denny's and they've decided that they're going to tell her mom everything and when she goes to the bathroom she comes back and he's called her mom and told everything so she yeah. ends up moving back home And she tries to get sober. Sean is living with his parents and she does have this like nice little six to nine months where she's not drinking. She's not doing drugs. Her and Sean are getting really close. Sean is her entire life and her keeper and basically her sober companion. And she's watching Sean's mom, who's kind of like a domestic goddess of sorts and being like, that's the life I want. So after six months of sobriety, Sean pops the question and they get married when she is 19 years old. I think he proposed when she was 19. They got married when she was 20. Right after he proposes, she says, we got into the car and I immediately called my mom. Oh my God, mom. He asked me to marry him. I thrilled with joy. She joined in. I think her prayers were answered. Even though I was 19, she and I both thought this was exactly what I needed to turn my life around. That is so dangerous to be like, okay, the key to me staying sober is to just put a legally binding document together about this relationship that I've treated like shit. And then, of course, she goes, all of my friends thought I was crazy for getting married so young. But Candace goes, don't listen to them. If you're happy, that's all that matters. Ugh. She has this big wedding. They're married. She's so happy. She buys them a house. He's going to become a cop. They move in. It's like the honeymoon period, which ends right quick. And then I think she gets very bored. They're staying home. They're not going out. She can't have a social life and be sober. Also, she's very good here about explaining that she was dry but not sober, which is a really important detail. Dry means that she was not doing drugs or drinking, but she wasn't sober. She wasn't doing any of the mental work or like any of the actual work to acknowledge her addiction what she needed to do. So they got married at the end of July, July 27th, 2002. All the Full House people came. Cameron Candace Burr was her matron of honor. Why that's important is because she decides to have her first drink at a Halloween boat cruise. So you guys can do the math. That's three months later. She describes like a little domestic hell living with him. She's like, I was so bored. We were staying in every night. And she goes to this party and she's like, I know now that I'm an alcoholic because the amount of planning that went into that first drink. This is how I'm going to hide it. This is how I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to have. And so she goes and of course she ends up getting like totally fucked up and blacked out. She stays out 
till 3 a.m. She's partying in the Hollywood Hills and she comes back. And of course, her husband, Sean, is obviously angry, but she's able to be like, I think I can drink now. We'll have one at dinner. Like we can do that. We can add wine to our lives. It'll make our lives way better. Also, she says that the way she tricked him is that he was a big hobbies guy. She like basically tricked him into getting into wine as a sommelier. Can I say I again, this is another thing that I don't believe I just think he was like a codependent enabler. Yeah. Because if your wife has a history with alcoholism and is somebody who, when you married her, had to be dry, then you don't make alcohol your hobby and act like, well, now it's cool because it's my hobby. I also do think, especially during this time, I think a lot of people still have like a really significant misunderstanding of alcoholism. Mm -hmm. But I think then it's clear that everyone in her life either didn't care about her or truly didn't understand what this disease is. Yeah. You don't just go, oh, we'll just drink more expensive alcohol and then your alcoholism will be just like a fun party trick. Yeah. So she starts spiraling out of control. So she he becomes a cop and his hours are 5 p.m. till 5 a.m. And so she starts figuring out that the second he leaves, she can leave at 6 p.m. She can party till 4 a.m. and then she can sneak back in bed, pretend she's asleep. He'll never know anything happened. So she starts going out and partying and she relapses not just on alcohol, but on drugs. Yeah. And it just starts escalating because she's always looking for a new high. She talks about chasing that first feeling with everything so basically the first time she tried alcohol it was euphoric so she's always chasing that high then the first time she tried cocaine it changed everything she's chasing that high now someone introduces meth and she's like well starting something new how could that go wrong she tries meth loves meth so now she's in a point where she is spending five hundred dollars a week on meth she says i was spending five hundred dollars a week on meth at this point but sean never suspected anything his job paid for most of the bills and because i handled paychecks and the household finances i got good at shuffling things around so he wouldn't know how much money was disappearing so i also want to say this line she says i thought that if i could continue cooking and being a perfect homemaker while he was there he would never suspect the drugs and craziness that occurred when his back was turned after a while it became the norm very quickly she's doing meth every single night while he's out eventually she starts bringing it into the home but i have a couple things i want to say First of all, so he's a full-time cop. Yes. I don't think I've ever known somebody who was like addicted to meth and doing meth every day. But have you seen me on Adderall? Yeah. And you can tell. Yeah. If I'm on Adderall, I am a bit different. People who know me can tell. And that's one day. She says that as long as she didn't smell like booze, he could never tell anything. But I don't think that's true. She also talks about how she lost so much weight. She got down to 102 pounds. Yeah. And she claims that she just told people it was from Wellbutrin that she had lost all that weight. She's out every night. She's going through money. The thing that I also question is the finances. I feel like this line is a bit dishonest about their family finance setup because she later in the book says that every couple months she's getting five figure residual checks from Full House. And on top of that, she must have like invested some of the money she made in Full House because that's just residuals. She, there must be a principal out there that she used to buy the house and stuff. Yeah. So for her to be like, oh, we were paying bills on his cop salary. So he didn't notice any of his cop money was gone. I was like, or you're just getting residual checks and lying about it. If you have $40,000 coming in every couple months and your husband doesn't know about finances, it is very easy to be spending $500 a week on meth. There's a lot of money to blow. (laughs) Just overall, this whole concept of him having zero clue is ridiculous. Also, she's having like weird things happen to her where she got in trouble with a drug dealer one time and he started calling her and threatening to kill her and he had just gotten out of jail. So she was like, I believed him. And I called Sean and asked him as a cop to like look up this guy's outstanding warrants and they called the guy and were like, leave her alone or else we'll come get you. And I just feel like there's only so many things like that that can happen. Okay, so here's where I wonder is how much did he not recognize and how much did he just choose to like fully ignore? How much of it would he have 
put together in hindsight and how much of it was he noticing in the moment and just being like, I don't want to fucking deal with this. Well, I guess he was just used to being treated like shit by her. And I think it sounds like they lived very separate lives anyway. Yeah, because it's also not like he'd never seen her doing drugs and partying. Mm -hmm. Like he knew that side of her and just not a single thing has occurred to him. That's crazy. This is like one night of partying that I think is very important to note. She has this one night where they do the full house reunion dinner. The whole gang gets back together. They're at John Stamos's Malibu pad. They have a lovely night. They all get absolutely fucked up. She said the whole cast decided to get together at our favorite Malibu restaurant. Bob, Dave, John, Candace, Mary Kate, Ashley. Everyone was there. We were all laughing. I guess a bunch of people went home early. So like Mary Kate left too. Unfortunate. But then they went back to John Stamos's house for just like a ball and after party. And she said that it was like a non-sexual sleepover. But she, Ashley and John Stamos all just kind of crashed in his bed. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. <laughs> beautiful time. Should I become an alcoholic? Anyway. So then she says, this is just like a beautiful moment. She said, the sun cracked through the windows of John's bedroom. We woke up groggy and hungover. John got up to make breakfast burritos. And Ashley and I moved our headaches out to the deck where we watched the waves crash on the shore and dolphins jump out of the water. I mean, I know that we shouldn't be glamorizing a disease right now, but to get fucked up and wake up in a bed with John Stamos and Ashley Olsen and then John Stamos makes you breakfast burritos and you watch dolphins. I don't know. I feel like that's where I go when I'm like trying to calm myself down. That's where my brain jumps to. (laughs) I will say on the other hand, she talks about going to the New York Minute premiere and how during the whole premiere, she had to leave the movie three separate times to go do math in the bathroom. And she eventually stopped snorting it because she said it like rips up your nose really badly. And she had moved on to smoking it and she had figured out a way to like smoke it through a wet paper towel so that she could smoke meth in public places. But like she couldn't get through the premiere. She was doing it all the time. She brought it home. She got really flagrant with it. She says when her husband would be home, she would just smoke in the office where there was no doors and smoke out the window. I'm pretty sure it has like kind of a sharp smell. So I just feel like to be smoking meth flagrantly in the middle of the day in an That's open That's what I mean is how could he not have known? With a cop and he wasn't like, what is that smell? I'm sorry, but like even if somebody fucking farts, you go, what is that smell? I mean, a smell is a hard thing to ignore. But I also want to tell this one last story. The main friend that she was partying with at this point was this woman, Monica. And she talks about how Monica was shooting up. Monica had a blood vessel burst in the bathroom. And she was in a panic and she kicked Monica out of the house, gave her a Band-Aid and was like, I have no time for this. And cleaned up the whole bathroom with minutes to spare before he got home from work. Like a full on bloodbath scene. I'm just thinking, I don't know. You didn't. I guess it's speed. So you've got like the attention to detail because I'm like, if it was weed and someone was like bleeding all over the place, you clean up like a third of it and you're like, no one will notice this. (laughs) One of the few stories that I think you're just like, what the fuck? That was too far is she had studied education in college. So she got a job at the YMCA helping kids with their homework after school from like 1 to 9 p.m. And she got drug tested, somehow passed it. I have no idea how she passed that drug test. They must have just lied about doing a drug test. But she talks about just bringing meth to the YMCA and watching little kids and being essentially their caretaker and going to the bathroom and doing drugs and smoking meth and doing coke and drinking on the job with children. And that to me is like too far. That to me is too I feel like the only negative side effect that she really presents is remorse absolutely and I guess she didn't suffer any true consequences and so maybe that's why you know we were very critical of Portia de Rossi's book for being like here's how sick I got and then things were fine and I think that is just a little bit dangerous same I don't have like a moral high ground but I do think there was a million jobs where children's lives weren't at stake yeah like you could have gone and been a receptionist I just think that there are a lot of things that she got so so lucky with 
that nothing had gone wrong. She is driving around this entire book and she is fucked up out of her mind. And it doesn't sound like she ever got into a car accident. The amount of danger she put people under being behind the wheel of a car is insane that she ended up fine. So speaking of hurting herself, one of the bigger consequences of this book, I guess, is she has an overdose. Mm -hmm. She's out with some friends. They're all drinking, but she's sneaking away to do drugs the entire time. And they're not very aware. They also aren't even aware of how much she's drinking. They're having a couple of cocktails and she's like, oh, I'll be right back and going to the bar and just downing three shots. That's kind of how she drinks. Tries to get out of a car while it's moving because she's losing it. And then they pull over. She gets out of the car. She's lying on the ground and coming in and out of consciousness and begging them not to call the cops. They eventually do call an ambulance because she's going in and out of consciousness and can't get off the ground. And it turns out she was overdosing. Again, the biggest consequence of this situation is that now everyone knows. Mm -hmm. So there was no dramatic repercussions from this. But now she has to go to rehab. And there's like this enormous betrayal in her relationship because the woman he's been married to for two years has been on meth the entire time. So she doesn't just go to rehab. She goes to the infamous Passages Malibu which at the time that she went in 2007 was $65,000 a month. So what do you think it costs at this point? I just found a Reddit post that said it costs 88.5K a month. So she goes to Passages Malibu. She goes, I checked into Passages, a beautiful luxury rehab facility in Malibu. I had called Betty Ford, but they didn't have any beds. As I was driving to Passages, a bed opened up at Betty Ford. We should have turned the car around. I probably would have had a better chance of getting and staying sober had I gone to a place that had more involvement with the 12 steps. Passages focused more on wellness and personal happiness as opposed to treating addiction as a disease. She later goes on to talk about Passages and their abysmal success rate. I mean, everyone that goes there relapses. She is like nice. She's like, I don't mean any disrespect to these guys who founded it, but like whatever they're doing is blatantly not working. This idea that if you can create a perfect life for $88,000 a month, then you like you won't use drugs and alcohol. I don't know how that really sets you up for success in the real world. No, it just doesn't at all. And it's also so uncontrolled. She's like, they were allowed out for just like dinners you just had to have a companion with you yeah she's like we were shopping on our day it really was like a vacation yeah and she loved it she made such great friends they had a wonderful time she finally got to go to summer camp that she always wanted to but couldn't go to full house she went to like yeah. rich girl summer she was just camp. like doing equine therapy where they weren't even allowed to ride the horses but then they just like asked nicely and then they were allowed to ride the horses yeah. i mean they could do whatever they wanted there just weren't drugs it was a sober paradise that's the weird thing about here she makes all these friends and passages and there is something weird about being like are these people celebrities they're all so rich you have to be so rich to be spending a million dollars a year yeah rehab and it sounds like a lot of these people just like checked in and never checked out it was very hotel california it's like the four seasons plus therapy therapy at this point she starts going to therapy and that's when in the book she drops a bombshell plot twist that she is adopted. So she talks a lot about like her early days of drinking and how she just couldn't get enough of it. She was like insatiable. And she's like, it was weird because my parents weren't big drinkers, so they didn't get it. And then you find out that her parents are not her biological parents. And I think that that was just like an absolute aha moment as a reader. As a reader. But I also wonder as a writer why it was written as a bombshell in the book. Yes. Which is bizarre because she didn't learn it at rehab. She had always known she was adopted. And then she says when she was 10... She started getting more curious about it. And that's when she found out that both of her parents had been in jail when mm -hmm. she was born, both for drugs. Her biological father died shortly thereafter. She doesn't know anything about her biological mother, but she is distantly related to them in the sense that her father's first wife was the aunt of her biological father. There is like a weird connection, but they have a deeply closed adoption. So mm -hmm. there's not really a lot of information, but we do know 
that her parents were addicts. And that explains so fucking much. Yeah. It's a disease. It's in your system. And she was genetically predisposed. And she goes, it makes sense. When I look back at how I drank, I didn't drink like other 14 year olds. I drank like an addict and it was in me. Yeah. She has one daughter at the time of this book coming out. They've just like this heartbreaking plea that her daughter doesn't have this gene. And you're like, my God, I fucking hope she doesn't. She says, as I slowly put together the bits and pieces of my biological history of addiction, I knew that when I drank, I was drinking like an addict. I knew that other kids at 14 or 15 years old weren't drinking the way I was drinking. All of a sudden, my curiosity turned to anger. It does suck to be like, this is just in me and there's nothing you can do about it. And I think it's probably especially angering for someone who has that to be able to watch someone having fun drinking. Mm -hmm. I think that that sucks to be like, why can't I just party and have a good time? Also, I mean, our society is so freakishly built around alcohol. I'm not a big drinker. And so sometimes I'll be like, okay, I'll just stop drinking altogether because what is the point of it? The way that people treat you when you try to stop drinking is insane. They're like, unless you have a reason like a rock bottom or they'll bully you if you're religious. But the idea that you just want to go out and you're not interested in putting poison in your body to make you act a way you wouldn't normally act is beyond comprehension to people. People are obsessed with making people drink. And I used to do that. I used to be like, why won't my friends drink with me? But I do wish like we lived in a more sober, accepting culture. And I think eventually we will. I think that's another thing that's coming. I think people are a lot more like understanding of sobriety now. So we'll see. So while she's in passages, she does for the first time feel accepted and like she's made friends. She feels like they have this common bond. I guess they're trauma bonding. They literally are. <laughs> but her whole life she has felt like left out and like she didn't belong. And when you understand the adoption thing, you do understand why deep down where that stems from. This idea that she like doesn't truly belong anywhere, that she's half in and half out of every world. She was also adopted at nine months, which mm-hmm. I do think is a little significant so she's at passages she's finally making friends that she feels are like her true bosom buddies and she's going to counseling for her marriage and believe it or not it's not looking good it turns out that they've been built on a bed of lies and even under the lies i don't know that there's a whole lot there that's what i was gonna say is i think that the actual core of the bond between her and sean was codependency Uh and obsession with this companionship i don't think that they ever truly liked each other that much and so they're really just finding out that he doesn't like anything about her he was a security guard when they met and she clearly did have a lot of money and even though he didn't know who she was i do think that that is enough of something to be interested in that like keeps you going he might have been very in love with the lifestyle they had together i don't want to blame him but i do think that on one hand she lied a ton and treated you like shit so that does suck i mean it had to have been a lot of anger at himself to have been married to someone for two years and not notice that she was on meth the entire time So they're leaving and she's talking about how much she loved passages, which I think also hurt him that they had tried so hard to like build this little home together. It was nice. And then she gets to rehab and she's like, I finally have friends. I finally like being somewhere. And it's like rehab. And he goes, but they're addicts and alcoholics. He argued. So am I, Sean? Well, I don't like it. Well, I do. I said, I love it here. You love it here. How could you love it? This is rehab. You're not supposed to enjoy it. It's supposed to be painful and horrible. I think that's an incredibly fucked up thing to say to somebody. I also do think there is like a tiniest grain of truth that he could see that what she was experiencing at passages was not actually the work. No. She wasn't doing the true work it took to get sober. She wasn't doing the true work it took to get sober. But also remember that they had a couple of months of their relationship when she was truly sober. And she was miserable during that time. So I think to see that when she met people who understood her and listened to her that she could enjoy sobriety. She talks about really feeling comfortable in sobriety at passages. And obviously she was in like this luxury resort of sobriety. So it's 
quite nice. But mm-hmm. I think he's probably furious that he wants to punish her. He wants her to be like every day waking up and regretting everything she's ever done to him. And instead, she's like, I finally feel accepted. I'm so happy. And he's like, so I've all suffered. So they've acknowledged their marriage is not going to last. And it's not officially over yet. They haven't officially broken up, but she starts banging her next door neighbor at passages. Austin, who is also married. Of course. She moves to Transitions from Passages, which is a sober house that a lot of people from Passages go to. So her roommate at Passages was Rachel. They became, like you said, bosom buddies. They go to Transitions together. Transitions, by the way, is like the sober living halfway house of Passages. That is also Tommy Lee and Pam Anderson's former home. Yeah. It was on MTV Cribs. It's just like a gorgeous mansion that you like be sober at. But not everyone was. They would kind of like go out and drink and then come home and be like, are bad we shouldn't have done that yeah it seemed very loose it seemed like people were not particularly committed it was very like freshman year dorm vibes they were all friends they were all living together they were like partying all the time honestly so austin goes back to texas with his wife but he and jody are still in touch so she does a month at passages and then she goes to transitions 45 days of sobriety later which means two weeks into living in transitions they allow her to become an employee of passages and help new people get sober which is i'm sorry absurd deeply i think irresponsible of the people of passages because clearly jody is not in a position to be a hand in another person she is not someone to lean on right now she needs all the support she can get i mean so literally what happens is that she goes and helps a girl who's moving into passages she's helping her pack up her dorm room so that she can go to rehab they find a bag of meth and then they do the meth together she has to re-get sober I don't want to be like passages. That's your fault. But like that was the stupidest fucking thing I've ever heard anyone do. So she ultimately lives at transitions for six months, relapsing a handful of times. She finally checks out October 2005. So she's dating a guy who moved into the transitions, a guy named Joey, who was Rachel's ex. She ends up getting an apartment and Joey moves in and Joey isn't even trying to be sober. And I think Jody, Jody and Joey, I just realized that <laughs> Jody has this idea that she can stay sober, even though her boyfriend is like in the living room railing lines of coke all the time. She does not make it very long. I think it was like a day. And she's also still talking to Austin. Austin comes to visit her and she picks him up at the airport and brings him to the apartment she shares with Joey. And then she goes, yeah, so I guess I got to talking and they figured out they were both my boyfriend. It's <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, you brought your boyfriend to the apartment you shared with your other boyfriend and didn't think they would figure it out. This is what I'm saying. How could Sean not have known? (laughs) After another one of her many blow ups, she tries to go back to transitions. At this point, being in transitions, somebody lets the globe know what's been happening with her. So the globe does this whole article about how she has been fighting a meth addiction and to get ahead of it her and her agent decide that she is going to do like a press tour basically. And so she does Good Morning America and a people interview. Obviously she's relapsed a bunch at this point, but she decides she's going to give like a version of the truth. She sat down with her agent and her therapist to come up with this concept. And I agree with it, that she didn't owe the public the whole truth. She says in the book, that's not how it's supposed to work in Hollywood. You're supposed to go to rehab once for 30 days and come out magically cured. That's what the people want to hear. And I agree with that. Like whenever we hear about a celebrity who's dealing with addiction, it's such a complicated and messy disease that lasts forever. And we're always like, oh, so-and-so went to rehab. Interesting. What movie are they doing next? And it's like, no, maybe they need to focus on sobriety. She says at this point she had been to transitions twice, relapsed a number of times. And at this point, she had barely 30 days under her belt of sobriety. Yes. And she's on Good Morning America (laughs) talking about her journey. What comes out of this is a full-blown speaking tour. She is now a beacon of sobriety. She's traveling the country, giving speeches about sobriety. She says for the next six months, she did remain sober. So she breaks up with Joey. Austin comes in. He had left his wife. 
He comes back and he starts living with her in the apartment. She decides to get the acting side of her career back on track. She's like, I always loved performing. I just like was too fucked up before to genuinely pursue it. So she decides to try and like revive her career. So she's taking an acting class. She goes out with some people from her class after and decides once again that she can handle a drink. This quickly tumbles into hitting up some of her old drug buddies. She's back on meth pretty quickly. And thus begins a year and a half long bender. Then she talks about meeting up with her friend and she's like, me and my friends were looking for somewhere to drink and we see Hyde, which anybody who watched The Hills knows was the very hot nightclub of LA in the mid aughts. She tries to get in and she's turned away at the door. TMZ is right there and catches her being rejected. They go, Jody, what happened? Shouted the man behind the camera. It was all very funny. Although it seems slightly less funny when I saw Jamie Kennedy and Tom Green walk out of the club. Jamie Kennedy and Tom Green, what list were they on? Fair point. (laughs) So then she ends up figuring out how to get into the loop of these clubs. She becomes obsessed with being a Hollywood hotspot go-to girl. But somehow she's also maintaining this speaking tour. She's traveling the country, making money as a speaker who's talking about sobriety. Meanwhile, she is going out every night getting beyond fucked up all the time. I mean, she is just listing the drugs. She she would go out to these clubs. She would go to the Roosevelt Hotel at night, Mm -hmm. which is in the middle of Hollywood. She would fill the room with drugs. She would always bring the after party back to her house. She's like, we would go to the club. We would dance all night. Then we'd go to the hotel, do drugs until sun up. Then we'd go lay at the pool, do it all again. And I was like, she says as time went on, I became more of a Hollywood regular. And as I became more of a regular, I became more and more out of control for about a year and a half. I did not have a sober moment. I use drugs day and night. She talks about drinking, doing coke, falling asleep with the party around her at her hotel room, waking up and taking a shot of the bottle in her bed and then doing whatever coke was left over on her nightstand. And that's how she started her day. And at some point during this period, she also lands the reality show. She's hosting this show on Fuse TV called Pants Off Dance Off, which is like a stripper dance competition, which is hilarious which is like it was like a ridiculous thing that I honestly had so much fun doing and I'm like fucking power to you that sounds but she was getting fucked up out there and then she has this very funny line that she goes the Olsen girls she never calls them the Olsen twins that's only the Olsen girls the Olsen girls were living in New York City at the same time but we never had any contact we may have been at the same city but we were worlds apart they were at NYU and I was at Pink Elephant downing champagne gray goose and of course a bottle of Jack Daniels Um, Okay, I do not think you were worlds apart. I don't think that they were not also at clubs drinking. Yeah, I do think it was like a different vibe, though. I mean, they were still there as like famous girls who were like taking a minute out of Hollywood to try college. And she was there as someone who was like 10 years out of the Hollywood spotlight who was hosting Pants Off Dance Off. She says between drugs, alcohol, alcohol at clubs, hotel rooms and other incidentals necessary to create the party, I spent about $60,000 in a nine month period during 2006 and 2007. But it didn't matter because I was having fun. So $60,000 to me is definitely not the correct number. We agree that it's not the correct number, but you think it's a typo and she meant $600,000. And I think it's a poorly calculated lie. The preface, she tells a story about going to Vegas for the weekend, taking out 10 grand in cash because she had lost her ATM card and her credit cards, spending 2,000 on an outfit, then losing the other $8,000 while she slept. And then in this story, she talks about going to Vegas for a week and spending 15 grand that week. That's nine days and $25,000 right there. I think she says she was spending about half the nights of the month at the Roosevelt Hotel, letting like 15 to 30 people come party and providing all the drugs and letting them like clean out the mini bar. To me, in nine months, I could see it having been 600K, to be honest. I could see it having been 600,000. I don't know. I just think that the idea of there being that level of 
typo feels so bizarre to me mm-hmm. to have left off a zero. I'm just like, I don't know. Cause this book wasn't sloppy. Yeah, no. And 60 K just is like not the right number. It's definitely a rush job because of the way it ends. Mm-hmm. But I don't feel like this book was sloppily put together. And I do feel like 60K is a number that they decided they like incorrectly calculated how poor the people reading this would be. So she has this absolute whirlwind year where again, whirlwind year. Again, I don't believe that she was pulling this all off. She says that at one point she spent the week in Vegas and she had a speaking engagement in Nashville and she got there and she was just so sick from drugs that she like couldn't make it out of her hotel room. And then she had to have her mom fly her back to L.A. because she had lost her phone and her credit card and everything that belonged to her. I don't think that you were this like beacon of sobriety that you think you were. I think that they were just like, well, we already paid for this. So I guess let's let her make a speech. (laughs) Her and Austin end up buying Austin's dad's house after he dies. Before they're even able to move in together, she tries to break up with Austin. Austin moves in anyway. And then is like a squatter there. And Jody has to move out of the house while she gets her lawyers involved to get him kicked out. And so she's like couch surfing on her friends houses. Yeah. And she had lost a lot of relationships in her life. She and Candace weren't speaking anymore because she just like forgot to return all of Candace's calls. Her parents, she would have these plans with her parents and then just not show up because she was doing too many drugs. And eventually they were like, you're not invited for Christmas. We're not doing this. She really bulldozed all of her relationships. And she again is like, it was bad, but she doesn't really illustrate it that well I think I know a lot more about the exact cocktail of drugs she was on than any feelings that she may or may not have had toward losing everyone she ever cared about the thing that I do believe though is that she says instead of processing if someone didn't call her back or if her mom was mad at her instead of thinking about it she would get high and I do believe that for like a year and a half there was not any feeling but being high or if she felt low instead of going sitting in it she just got high again totally I do think that upon soberly reflecting on it you could be like it is absolutely devastating to me that I seem like I didn't care about it because the idea now of not having them would be awful you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I just feel nervous about how inconsequential this year and a half long bender feels one of the stories she tells from this year that's supposed to illustrate how awful she treated everyone around her is she got really sick one day and got a staph infection under her armpit and she had a 103 degree fever she was hiding out in a hotel and the guy she was dating at the time Mike insisted on taking her to the hospital and sure enough she was like 48 hours out from the staph infection getting into her bloodstream and killing her. And so they had to like pop it open. It was a whole thing. She literally just threw gauze on it and then jumped on a plane and went to Vegas and never talked to Mike again. And what happened here in Vegas is she met someone else, a man named Cody. God, a man named Cody. If that wasn't enough to stop you, like how, how does a mother know her own son will be a red flag? I love that idea <laughs> that like a mother brought a monster into this world and she's like, how do I warn the other women? I know I'll name him Cody. <laughs> She meets Cody in Vegas. She says that Cody made her want to slow down. They connected immediately. Apparently, Cody was like the mega partier in his friend group, too, which you could probably guess. I'm sure he was wearing flip flops, but it was like this instant connection. She wanted to slow down with him. They didn't stop partying. They honestly partied a ton together. But this whole thing that she had about hosting the party, bringing everyone back to her suite, providing the drugs for everyone, she did get over that because of Cody. And she was like, I don't want to be fucked up with 30 people I want to be fucked up with him and so she thought that was love and so of course after two months of dating and being obsessed with each other and going partying and clubbing they decide it only makes sense to get married in Vegas just the two of them they invite a bunch of friends and like uninvite them it was kind of weird that they were like we invited everyone we wanted it to be this huge party then we're like actually just us so we changed the time of the wedding and didn't tell anybody she also did not tell her parents and they found out via her agent and were 
furious. Yeah. I mean, she's two years out of a divorce already. She's like 24 at this point. And then just pretty quickly... By October, she finds out she's pregnant. May, they meet. End of May, Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. July, they get married. October, she is a couple months pregnant. Their weekend in Vegas where they got married is where she conceived yeah and so she obviously freaks out because she's like oh my god i have not been acting good for a pregnant lady the doctor's like you'll be fine and she's like cocaine fine like (laughs) ecstasy fine like the doctor was like people have a couple drinks when they're pregnant they don't know it yet and she's like like, i'm having a couple drinks now (laughs) i've had a couple drinks since i got to this doctor's appointment but the baby is what it took for her to squeaky clean up her act for a little bit she doesn't use again while she's pregnant she does her thing where she goes if i can build the perfect home outside of LA and completely recreate my life, then I will be safe. They buy a house an hour outside of LA. In Corona. Yeah. It's far. She makes it really nice. She spends all of her money. They sell the other house and she spends everything she has to make this like the perfect house. And as she is soberly pregnant with this baby, you'll never guess what happens. She finds out she actually hates Cody. (laughs) Who could have seen it coming? And I will say the examples she gives aren't egregious but it does but set a picture frustrating she basically is like the only thing he actually cared about is video games the way she explains that he used to work in transportation on set he did that like one time on one set and has really never actually worked he was an unemployed man she goes we were always going back to my house i didn't realize at the time he was living with his mom she finds out that all he does is sit around and play video games and he has no intention of getting a job especially when he realizes her access to residual fame like selling the story of the fact that she's pregnant selling the first baby photos selling stories to tabloids is basically like his new income getting free shit from gifting suites making appearances he's like why would I work when you could work one day and make what I make in a month yeah and she's like well because I'm pregnant and tired so anyway she has the baby and oh my god do we have a doozy of a fucking pregnancy story for you the baby came very late they had to induce her they gave her an epidural 36 hours later the baby still hadn't come so she goes Cody will you go for a walk with me the doctor thinks it might help induce labor Cody goes babe I don't feel like it I sat in this uncomfortable chair all night and I barely slept (laughs) (gasps) the way my eyes bugged out of my face you know i like have no patience for a man being anything but absolutely worshiping you during the labor process these men who don't understand that women after they give birth have just endured a major bodily trauma the idea that moms should pick up all of the early parenting is so fucking psychotic i can't even wrap my brain around it and so then she walks around with her mom when my mom came to accompany me on the walk cody had the nerve to express his discomfort to her the chairs are terrible then she goes finally starts having contractions and they decided i need a c-section and so when it was time to roll her into or he goes i can't do it he said i can't go in there i can't watch i think i'm gonna be sick So her mom has to go in when she has the C-section. I want to kill this man. So, of course, it doesn't get better from there. They come back. He has barely any interest in helping. It's like if she's home, which she always is, it's her job to take care of the baby. He's playing video games. She also has this line. On top of the grind of taking care of Zoe, I was still in a lot of pain from the C-section. Cody enjoyed that and would try to make me laugh because he knew it hurt when I laughed. That and video games were his two forms of entertainment. It's sick. And then at this point, they're also broke. They had spent all of their money on the house and I guess on partying and on rehab. For some reason, the residual checks had kind of slowed down. They were so broke that they couldn't pay any of their bills. She didn't have any insurance either. And she was skipping her C-section post-op appointments because she couldn't afford the doctor's visits. Her C-section cost her 25K. 
he would not get a job. He was on board with doing a reality show. He kept trying to get her to do a reality show. She's getting booked on like some weird, I guess, TV movies. She starts shrinking again. Yeah. She goes out to North Carolina to do a TV movie. He drives out there to sort of be a part of it. And he's just awful. He was like, why are you becoming friends with the crew? You're the actor. You shouldn't be friends with the crew. She's like, you were crew, bitch. (laughs) Yeah. The more she's starting to drink, the more she's getting into these explosive fights with him. And she's like, every time I think I say something that we can't come back from, he assumes I was just drunk and didn't mean it. She at one point gets drunk and then drives with the baby to a friend's house to get away from him, which is really bad. And then doing another film in North Carolina, she like goes out and drinks with a couple of crew members and just kind of has like an absolute meltdown about how she like really needs to maintain her sobriety for her daughter. She finally tells him that she's getting divorced. She calls it. They get into a huge fight where he threatens to take the custody of the baby and say that she'll never see the baby again. She takes the baby and runs anyway, knowing that she'll always share with him. But he won't necessarily share with her. When this book ends, they are in the custody battle still. Yes. She has one more relapse during the custody. But she says, I went out, I drank, and I stopped myself from doing drugs. And I went home and I felt bad. And she goes, that truly was my rock bottom. Because I had never had a few drinks and felt bad about it before. She's like, I've never done it. And then been like, no, I'm going to stop. I don't want to do this. She's like, it used to be the second I had a sip, the night was gone. And she goes, that feeling of feeling bad was the worst rock bottom of my life. Which is like, not too bad of a rock bottom, I guess. Yeah, I do feel like this entire book was a personal letter to the judge who is handling Mm -hmm. the custody case, which is unresolved at the publication of this book, because it does feel like this entire thing is her being like, listen, I'm a mess, but things could have been a lot worse and I'm a nice person and I mean well and please don't be mad at me and I love my daughter above all else. She was 114 days sober when she turned in this manuscript She had started writing it, I guess, as soon as the divorce was publicized. I would almost argue, seeing what we've seen with Britney Spears, that this wasn't so much a letter to the judge, but now that we see how important it is that the public opinion is on your side, yeah, that this was like a rewriting of the narrative to the public so that she could get her story out there and then people could forgive her. And then like the vibe of that would change what happens in the court. Like I do think it was for the courtroom, But I don't necessarily think it was like she assumed the judge would read it. I think she like needed the public opinion to change in her favor just so that she could live her life as a mother. I guess I don't mean it was a letter to the judge. I agree that it was a letter at the judge that it was like, what is the energy that we can present to this judge? Like, let me cast this book out to like turn people's opinions the way I Mm -hmm. need them to turn so that we can like. There was a timestamped urgency that had to do with the custody case. Yes. And I also think that clearly this book worked crazy well because I mean, her life is still, we don't know a ton about it. I'm very interested if she's going to write another book, but she has since gotten married, had another kid and gotten divorced again. I think she had another kid, got married to that guy and divorced him since this book came out, had a custody issue with that guy. Now she has a new person that she's, he's like very on her Instagram. I don't know who's been between this guy and the other guy, but what I'm saying is that she was like a very public meth addict and she is working with Disney again. So that's how much people forgave her. <laughs> I also think it's helpful that Candace is so Christian. Yeah. That I do. I wonder, and this is me like very much speculating. I don't know for sure, but I could see if Candace is like beloved in the Christian community. If Candace is like, we turn the other cheek, Jesus forgives. We, everyone deserves a second chance. She is white. Don't forget. <laughs> she is allowed to try again three or four more times. If that kind of like okays Jody in other people's eyes. 
I think that that definitely helps because it seems like her and Candace are like back on track. So and I do think everyone has the right to talk about their addiction whatever way they want to. And I don't think that they're directly responsible for people's feelings. But I've also read The Heroin Diaries by Nikki Six, which is one that we haven't covered yet on the podcast. And that really dives deep into his time on heroin um, and doing drugs heavily and partying heavily. There's a lot of alcohol. There's a lot of cocaine. There's a lot of sex. And he really paints a gnarly picture. Like it is a repulsive book, honestly. Like it's disgusting and it makes you be like, this is awful. Whereas this book, I was kind of like, wow, she partied way too hard, but she kind of handled it. Whereas there must have been a smell. Like there must, she must have, not even the smell of meth, but like when you're partying this hard and partying this heavily and living this life, you're not showering. There is like a disgusting element to it. You have like the personal hygiene is fucked. Like everything is fucked. I mean, she was talking about how she would just go to Express and buy a new outfit instead of like going home to like bathe and pack a bag to go on a trip. I just don't think that she shows the ugly side of addiction well enough. And maybe her addiction wasn't ugly. I do think it is a little bit dangerous to put a book out there where like it feels almost like Jessica Simpson's sobriety story. Do you remember how it was just kind of like her friends holding hands and being like, and then we wished for sobriety and I did it. Like, it feels a little after-school special to me. Well, here's what she says in the preface. Yeah. She goes, this is the story of my life, what I went through, and where I am now. This is what happened to me and how I felt about it. Maybe it will make you reflect on some of your own decisions, and maybe it won't. Either way, it's not by any means a guide on how to get your life together. I hope you can read this and have a little understanding and empathy for what people in my situation go through. By reading this book, you are letting me know that you are rooting for me. So I do actually think she is almost out and out being like, this is my plea to America to forgive me. Yeah. And I do think that it's important to read it with that perspective because from that perspective, I was like, I am rooting for you and I want you and your daughter to have the happiest life and I want you to stay sober. And I'm, and I feel really sad that she dealt with this, but this is not a book about overcoming addiction. This is a book for everybody who ever said, Oh, what happened in Stephanie Tanner? It's like for millennials our age, you have a baby now and go, Oh my God, what happened to that girl? And they're like, you'll never believe it. She's doesn't sugarcoat how bad it was, but also she's not here. I think. And I don't think she has to. I do think that there is just like this responsibility as like a public figure who literally had a year long career of speaking on sobriety which she was obviously not qualified to do and still isn't qualified to do at the time of publication. I think to like, yeah. I think to have like stood on a soapbox and be like, here's my tale of sobriety. I think it's a, it's a fair point that like, obviously with the Portia de Rossi, you were able to more be like, as somebody who has struggled with this, this was not a true account of how low it gets. And instead this was like a glamorization. Mm-hmm. I feel like neither of us have really struggled with addiction. So it's harder for us to bring that kind of personal critical eye to it. But I agree that I do think if you heard it from her parents' side, what it's like to wake up every day. She has one line about how her dad kind of hints that they didn't think she'd survive to have a family of her own, that they never thought she would, they would have grandchildren. And I think if you heard their story about what it was like to have your daughter for six straight years be up and down in addiction, it would have been a lot more harrowing. Yeah. It wasn't an emotional book. It wasn't very emotional. Honest book, but it wasn't emotional. And it was in the same way that Portia Drossi's book like detailed the exact foods she ate to reach 90 pounds. She does like detail. Like she gives you the recipe of what she was taking every night. And I'm like, this did like worry me. (laughs) This was not a memoir about how to overcome addiction. This was a memoir about a 
former TV star who happened to have been an addict. This was a memoir about here's what I've been up to since you saw me. And it happens to be somewhat tawdry. Yeah. (laughs) But this was in no way. Like, I think if you went to Barnes and Nobles and bought a story about somebody overcoming addiction. Yes. But that's not what this really was. This wasn't that story. This was the story of a child star. And where it's like, it was almost like the gossip you wanted or something. Yeah. It was very gossipy. Like, oh my God. And she had a staph infection and she didn't even go to the hospital. And then she ditched that guy and she was woke up in a hotel and everyone around her was having sex. Like, oh my God, she was a, she was a child star. I know it is crazy to like, think about the lives that child stars have led that we've like forgotten about, because I do think we could have easily forgotten about Jodie Sweetin. Oh, 100%. I did. (laughs) I know. (laughs) This week on the Patreon, you guys, we are going to do a roundup of the major themes and how celebrity stars grow up we think that there's a couple general patterns that you could follow so if you are planning on taking your child and trying to turn them into a star and you don't want them to end up like Jodie Sweetin we think we have what you need to do to make sure you have an empire we are going to track some of the big ones find the similarities subscribe to the patreon if you haven't rate review subscribe if you haven't as always there's a couple warm shirts left tell your friends tag us in posts follow us everywhere DM us just to say hey. Come to the wormhole and chat with your worm friends. Oh, yeah. We have a Facebook group called The Wormhole where we talk about all kinds of stuff. Literally anything you want to talk about. Tell us what you had for lunch. We love you guys more than anything. Yes. That is so true. I love you guys. Have a great day. Bye.